Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This is the eighth in a series of podcasts promoting the Seminole Wars Foundation's self-paced virtual challenge, the Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King. We launched the virtual march on December 22nd. You may still register by visiting www.seminolewars.us. Over several episodes, we have alluded to or briefly described the Dade Battle of late December 1835. The time has come to take a deep dive. The Dade Battle, also known as the Dade Massacre, arguably represents the opening shots to the Second Seminole War. Other shots were being fired throughout Florida in that December, as well as in the months leading up to this engagement. But this was the big battle, the battle that seized everyone's attention and that informed the U.S. government that the Seminole would not go quietly into Oklahoma exile. With us today to set the scene for the Dade battle is Ross Lamoureux. Ross is a military reenactor a museum exhibitor at the Tampa Bay History Center, the newly elected president of the Dade Battlefield Society, and someone who has actually walked the path of Dade's march from Tampa to catastrophe in present-day Bushnell. Ross Lamoureux, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much, Patrick. What happened here? On December 28th of 1835, a column of men marching from... Fort Brooke in Tampa today to relieve the garrison at Fort King near Ocala today were attacked and ambushed by a column of Seminoles in a very classic ambush that killed all but three men. Uh, This was the largest loss of life by ratio of any army unit since the American Revolution and was really the catalyst, not exactly the starting point, but what drove the government to enter the Second Seminole War. Who was Major Dade, and why was he and his command traversing through this area? Major Dade was Francis Langhorne Dade, a U.S. Army officer since the War of 1812. He was one of the senior officers at Fort Brooke when they were given word by the Army that they needed to go relieve the garrison at Fort King. There were tensions happening, and the Army foresaw that there was going to be, if not war, at least conflict. This was something that they did frequently, go back and forth. So this was something that had been done before. It took roughly nine to 10 days on a march. It's about 90 plus miles from Fort Brooke to Fort King. So actually kind of routine, except now with the tensions up, they realized they had to take a little more preparation. So I think they took this march a little more seriously than ones they had done before. Took command from Captain Gardner. Captain Gardner being an officer at Fort Brooke uh, with the uh, U.S. artillery, as a regular, he commanded one of the companies that garrisoned. He would have been the senior captain of the two companies that were brought along. And by virtue of his seniority in the Army, from all intents and purposes, we see him and Major Dade got along very well in their assignment, both at Brooke and a couple other places where they had served together prior. Major Dade left Captain Gardner behind, but Captain Gardner did not stay behind. Why was that? Captain Gardner had stayed behind to take care of his ill wife, uh, but he was able to arrange for shipping for her go to Key West, and I believe later on to New Orleans. So once 
she was taken care of. He felt his professional need was to go back to, to the column. So he met them within just a little over a day. He met them in an encampment, I believe, near the Hillsborough River along the march. He felt it was his duty that initially, since he was supposed to command and Major Dade had been gracious enough to take that over, that he needed to then come and take his role. Gardner was bringing about the same level of knowledge and time in the Army, just a few less years than Major Dade. But I think all in all, he was a good professional officer that knew his job within the artillery. And with that goes, a side note, artillerymen of that period, at least in what was called the heavy artillery, uh, those in the garrison, those using larger guns, were also trained in infantry tactics. So Captain Gardner was bringing not only the artillery professional knowledge, but very basic knowledge of an infantryman. So he was bringing a lot of knowledge, a lot of skill, and like I said, by all accounts, got along with Major Dade. So really a good right-hand man to have as an officer. What was the Fort King military road that they traveled on? Well, that was the main artery or main road that traversed north and south on the west coast of Florida. This was basically, at that time, a dirt trail that led from the, the gate of Fort Brooke all the way to Fort King. Being the main military road became also then the main civilian road as roads progressed and Florida became a territory and, and a state. It roughly parallels that of U.S. 301 today. How familiar was Major Dade with this road? I would have thought very familiar. He had made the trip to Fort King several times that I can figure. And the maps that the Army had produced of that road were pretty good. When you look at today, when you overlay the period maps over modern maps, they were really, really close. So I think he would have been very familiar with the road itself, most of the terrain along the way. This road went right through the heart of Seminole country. What was the source of tensions between the Seminole and the U.S. government? The main tensions were the initial agreements that were signed by the government with Seminole leadership signed several years before. They had initially formed a treaty that allowed them for several years to have to move out so that they could take care of their lands and animals and, and other objects. But the government, uh, through pressure from settlers wanting to come further south and take over land, through that pressure decided to actually break the treaty and make them leave earlier. So the tensions were that the military was going to be used to enforce this native removal out west to initially Oklahoma. Seminoles seeing this pressure, some that still sided with the government, put their own pressure within the tribe to force up the move, but other leadership and other members, including the famous Osceola or Osceola, were not as ready to make this happen. There had been several smaller incursions or, or spark-ups that had occurred, some random shootings. Even the government realized something's about to happen, just things did not feel right, were not the way they were, because even Fort Brooke and Fort King had friendly natives around the posts all the time. They began to disappear or be around less frequently. It was just a matter of time. Everybody in command knew it uh, all the way up to uh, the highest levels to the president. With this backdrop, this was why Major Dade was taking his command to Fort King, to relieve it, to plus up its numbers and so forth, in case there were any trouble with the Seminole. Yes, indeed. In fact, they were deploying more troops from New Orleans to Fort Brooke for that very thing. And that's actually why the initial column led by Major Dade was a little later than they intended. They were hoping that the ships from New Orleans bringing another company of men would come. 
Uh, they did not, so he took it upon himself to go ahead and take the men that he had. The great question that Dorian's asked, if time was of the essence and Dade was needed urgently at Fort King, why did this infantryman bring along a cannon, which would have to cross several streams or rivers and generally slow down his force from getting there with all deliberate speed? We're using our modern sensibilities about slowing down. In reality, during the period, the bringing of a cannon was normal military doctrine to protect themselves. It was probably also needed at Fort King when you look at the list of armaments that they had. They had oxen to bring it. Um, oxen, although aren't fast animals, they move roughly at the pace of the human march. And the regulations back then that allowed for a certain number of break within a given day, the reality is it really wasn't slowing them down and it gave them the added, if not actual assistance, the, the psychological aspect that it did. So it was to protect the column and use in defense and attack if needed. Now he started out with horses pulling this cannon, but that proved cumbersome. It did indeed. When we envision a road, we're seeing paved, nice, smooth areas, and this wasn't as finished. This was nothing more than a dirt trail. So there were plenty of places along the way of sand, water, particularly the river crossings. There were several rivers that had to be crossed. So they realized horses were not the way to do this and brought in oxen, yes. Major Day set out with this command, mostly artillerymen. And I suppose then it certainly makes sense to bring a cannon if you're bringing artillerymen, even if they're trained as infantrymen as well. I know you said that the cannon didn't necessarily slow down the march. But when you reach a river and you have to get a cannon across and lots of troops and or oxen moving it, it does slow you down. What were some of the difficulties they had in pulling this cannon on the march? Some of the difficulties they had in pulling the cannon definitely were in the river crossings mostly. They were using fords as opposed to bridges. They did not have, I think, but one bridge built across any of the rivers they had to cross. So in a, in a ford crossing, you're dealing with Florida sand mud, uh, depth of water. So there were times uh, along the way within the rivers that the, the hubs and wheels would get stuck. Also along the trails themselves, there were lots of rain. So there's mud, there was tree roots, there were all kinds of things that would keep them from rolling along smoothly. We're talking about wooden wheels on a gun and some surly oxen who then they themselves even were kind of slow to move at times we know based on writings from other marches in similar circumstances and they also had problems traversing through the foliage even today when you go along the area and see the heavy scrub palmettos and mix of pine and oak trees just the terrain itself was very difficult but the cannon that they were using and the crew that had them were also pretty adept at disassembling the guns should they need to do that. I'm sure there were times that they actually had to at a couple points disassemble them to traverse the areas. And it was common army doctrine at the time to be able to do so, even on the heavier guns. And they had over 108 men trained to do so. Yes, in the long run, it probably slowed them down, especially with the modern sensibilities they had. But again, their training as U.S. regulars oftentimes could overcome some of those problems. Rashi discussed what the army force consisted of. What did the Seminole force consist of? And how many of them were there approximately at this battle? Depending on the accounts from those that were talked to afterwards, there were anywhere from 200 to 300 Seminoles coming from 
multiple different areas and even backgrounds. I don't know enough of the cultural parts as far as what uh, ethnic backgrounds they were, but what they had ideologically brought them all together to become Seminoles. They were light infantry. There were a few mounted Seminoles, just like we used. Some of their leadership was mounted so that they could move and be seen, but by and large, most of them rode or walked there. They kept the horses very well to the rear. They came in ahead of the army, picked their spots. So what you had was basically attacking a well-camouflaged, well set up light infantry, what would have been about two or three companies of men if compared to the army. They were light. They weren't encumbered by heavy equipment. They had their rifle, their pouches, air minimum, so they could move, they could travel very quickly, and they were masters of that cover and concealment. So yeah, basically what you had was two American heavy companies against two or three very light, very nimble light infantry companies. That's how the Seminoles were set up. Their leadership was very fluid in that unlike our hierarchy of having squads and platoons and companies, their tactics were a little different in that it was a combination of hand gestures, of uh, audible commands, and even like we used the bugle, there were times that Seminoles, although I don't know for this battle for sure, but other times they used shells and whistles. So their command and control was a little less restrictive, a little more fluid, as opposed to American doctrine. They were really not worried about the details, the big chain of command that we have. But they were very effectively able to use that fluid nature to good result in this battle and, and actually several others throughout the war. If one were to chart this on paper, one would say that two heavy companies versus two light companies, there should be no contest. If they were on open terrain, that might be the case. But when you put them in the type of confined terrain and rough terrain and terrain where it's easy to conceal and cover one's positions, we got a different outcome. Absolutely. Add to this the spiritual resolve that the Seminoles had in defending their own land. They have that to their advantage. You have an indigenous people utilizing basically what we call guerrilla tactics today in land of their choosing and their knowledge. It was almost a predestined that they would win, and it was their full choice to have either attacked and just shown we can do it and moved on, or as they saw divine providence, that it was just a wipeout. Either way, they had the superiority of chosen land and psychologically the power of bending your own land. Uh, the soldiers did not share that same sentiment. In fact, most hated being down here, the terrain, the mosquitoes, the heat, all that. It was not a popular place to serve. So you have to add that into the equation, I think, as well. The Seminole consisted of Seminole Indians and also Black Seminole, who reports say were mounted on horses. They knew that Major Dade and his command were marching through their territory, probably from the time they left Fort Brown. But they didn't attack while he was crossing the rivers. For Major Dade, after crossing the last water obstacle, he felt that the danger had passed. How did Major Dade then find himself in an ambush? I think it had everything to do with Seminole's brilliant understanding of how to use the land to their advantage. And when you go and see, even to today's mind, the brilliant use of cover and concealment that's there, the open land for clear avenues of fire, yet plenty of palmettos, pines, and other natural concealment, and then also a pond on the eastern flank of the battlefield, which was very marshy, very nasty. So 
what you had was really one way in, one way out with a complete blank being covered. So in using what we today call an L-shaped ambush, you were able to clearly fire into a very large field. This is obvious based on past actions and from learning from the natives themselves that this was a major planned place. The, the terrain was absolutely perfect. Uh, anyone who's walked that road, seen the areas that are very similar today in the undeveloped areas, can realize that that's probably one of two or three of the best places along the way that you could attack. Seminoles picked their ground very, very well. How did Major Day fail to prepare his troops before they moved into what would become the kill zone? Some of that is the arrogance of being a regular officer at the time, and other parts was he felt that the hardest part of the march would be the, the water obstacles, as you put it, uh, the, the, the river crossings. So I think he had pretty much a clear shoot all the way up to Fort King. A combination of that arrogance... Uh, and, and arrogance may be a harsh word, but that's kind of the modern word we use. A combination of that, combination of trusting in his men and his NCOs, and then probably just from being tired. He let his guard down by not following typical regulations of a march through uh, conflicted land. Uh, he would have had a certain number of flanker men several yards from the, the flanks of the column. He should have an advanced guard several hundred yards ahead and a rear guard. Of those things, the only thing he did utilize was an advanced guard, and they were really close to the main body. They were within, they were less than 50 yards. So basically, he broke army doctrine at that point. And also to throw things in was the weather. It was cold and wet. It had been raining pretty steadily with temperatures in the 40s. So the men themselves were kind of tired, too. And it was the perfect storm. When you have wet, tired, and overconfident men, it leads to letting your guard down. So it was a perfect storm. The men also did something with their overcoats. That caused them great difficulty once the ambush began. What was that? The overcoats are a point that we talk about a lot today. Army regulations then did not prescribe wet weather gear like we have today or even a few years after. No raincoats, ponchos, anything like that. The men used their overcoat as rain protection. A lot of the men, by virtue of how they carried them on their knapsack, usually uh, either rolled up in top or inside the flap where they could pull them out quickly. Most of the men very lazily put them on over their gear and buckled them up. In a quick ambush or attack, that's deadly because now reaching in for your cartridges to defend yourselves, to grab bayonets, you're encumbered. And that initial attack hit, we believe, almost half of the men in the very first volley. So their reaction time was greatly hampered by having that encumbrance. Once this began, what actions did the men of Dade's command take? One of the things I always like to say when talking about this is when it comes to warfare, particularly with the U.S. Army, the technology changes, but the men stay the same. And what I mean by that is they are able to take what technology they have, which at the time was a pretty decent 69 caliber smoothbore musket. They're able to take that and their training, the close order drill and constant drill and training that they received from their non-commissioned officers. And in combination with that training and ability to react and the officers that were still left because Major Dade was killed in the very first shot and first volley of the battle, the junior authors that were left, along with Captain Gardner and the majority of his non-commissioned officers, were then able to react according to the doctrine they had the day. 
and it's very similar to what we have today. When in an ambush, you counterattack. That initial volley, even though the shock of having almost half of your command down right off the bat, very quickly we know from all accounts they were able to rally. Uh, they immediately reacted to the L in the ambush by forming two lines of ranks, one facing to the north, one facing to the west, and were pretty quickly able to react and counterattack. In fact, battling for several hours, two to two and a half hours by all accounts. That's what happened initially after that first attack. They were able to counter that with professionalism and keep most of the force intact after that. One of the key things to know for soldiers is train, 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 so it becomes instinctual. Infantrymen, as opposed to artillerymen, might know more instinctually that when you're in an ambush, if you can affix a bayonet, do so, and then charge into the ambushers, because now that puts them on the defensive. It is told to all soldiers, this is the best way you have to survive. Why didn't Dade's men do this? That point is something that I have seen in count, not necessarily of this battle, but of the period that the bayonet was king. A very valid point was that the bulk of the men in this column were artillerymen who received the most basic of infantry training, still above and beyond what most men that were non-infantry trained would receive, but yet still not trained fully professional infantrymen. But they had the basics. Only less than a quarter of the men in that command were of the 4th U.S. Infantry Regiment. The rest were artillerymen. When you combine that with the fact that all remaining officers were artillerymen and most of your non-commissioned officers, I think what that leaves is not necessarily a hesitance, but not as quickly honed reaction. When we found through research that the battle itself almost ended when they did decide to fix bayonets and do an all-out assault forward. But it took a little time to get there. Had this column been 100% infantry or they had less casualties in that initial volley, I have every reason to believe that it would have ended a little differently, but it did not. In hindsight, we're looking back at a preponderance of artillerymen. We're looking at a preponderance of artillery leadership. And I think a natural amount of shock and fear from that initial volley. Yeah, again, you know, armchair quarterbacking this, we could look and say if they'd fixed bayonets and charged immediately, we might have a different turnout, but it didn't. And they might have had a different turnout if they had better intelligence. Certainly, as I mentioned earlier, the Seminole followed the trail of Dade's march and knew where they were at all times, but Dade didn't know where the Seminole were and certainly didn't anticipate they were at this spot where they were ambushed. What part could intelligence have played to prevent this? Intelligence would have had an awful lot to exist. Go back to, if not arrogance, it was at least confidence that they weren't going to be hit. But if they'd known two things, I think, uh, the biggest would be, one, that there was an intention of attacking them somewhere along the column. And two, if they had known about how many were going to be part of this attacking party, by any estimate you read anywhere from 200 to 300 Seminoles, those two facts alone would either change when or how you left for the march from Fort Brooke. They would have either waited for more men or not taken it at all. And two, been able to keep a better eye along the march for that. I think, based again on accounts, that the first couple, three days of the march, they were very much eyeballing the situation, heads on a swivel, as we call it today. By the fourth and fifth days along the march, these guys were tired, they were wet, probably hungry let their guards down, and intelligence would have been able to at least allow them to keep their heads up and continue to look. Uh, but it was an utter failure of intelligence at that time, as we call today an epic failure. 
the lack of intelligence, that is, situational awareness, may have led Captain Gardner to keep his men put rather than ordering them to withdraw back to the Fort King Road and do another river crossing or advance further up the road toward Fort King to territory that they had not traversed and had no intelligence about. How much do you think that played a part in Captain Gardner's actions after the ambush began? After the ambush began, I think it had everything to do with his actions. That lack of intelligence, that lack of knowledge, they were not going to continue to push north because he had no idea how many were up ahead. I don't think he wanted to retreat because he knew the difficulties of that march and the water traversing. Once the battle had started and he became the senior officer, I think it was totally to work with the known, the here and now, as opposed to speculate on anything. So I think his intention was to fight it out, stay put, stay in place. It's hard to know what he would have done had he succeeded in fighting off the ambush, but we can speculate there was no way he was going to move until he knew what was ahead or behind he also had wounded men to consider because if they had moved out further or back he would have left the wounded men behind very very true an excellent point we know that they had uh, one wagon and the two oxen so there was no way uh, unless they were ambulatory wounded and could walk on their own but that attack we know there were some very serious wounds and it was doctored then as it is now to not leave your men behind if you can help it that slowed them down dramatically and kept them from moving as well. A surviving Seminole account described an officer brandishing a sword and they called him the crazy man. Is that Captain Gardner? It was and there's two accounts. There's one that calls him the crazy man and another one that called him the goddamn man. And that came from his swearing constantly throughout the battle to get the artillery moving and the cannons firing and men in line. He was from all accounts very active throughout the entire line of battle running back and forth yelling swearing waving the sword as that symbol of office. They had a cannon, but from what I understand, they didn't have necessarily a box full of the right armaments for this type of battle. It was more of a Whitman sampler. How much of this may have impacted how the battle turned out? I think it had a huge amount. Uh, back then, you had regulations that stated what you carried in the limber box for each artillery piece, and it was a prescribed percentage and number of rounds. So many shots, so many great shots, so many solid shots. And in the terrain that was used with the heavy trees and foliage that are in the way, your solid shot does absolutely nothing, uh, especially natives in the open. They needed much more canister and double canister. And these percentages that were used in the government charts to load these up greatly hampered them. Initially, they shot up all their canister. Those are your best anti-personnel round for natives in the open or for light concealment and lack of cover. But after a certain point, they're left with nothing but solid shot, which is almost worthless and not even exploding solid shot at that. So yes, the lack of adaptability really deeply hampered that artillery piece for sure. And because of this attack, and its outcome, the Army decided to change their rules a little bit in the regulations and gave officers more autonomy in loading the limber for any kind of movement after that. did not help Dade's men, but it did change the outcome later on, allowing them a little more flexibility. Ironically, they got some feedback on the lack of effectiveness from captured Seminole in the months following this. What did they say about the cannon fire upon their positions? 
they basically said that it, it did no effect whatsoever other than the psychological part of the, the whistling that those things make. They just knew they were able to just hunt her down. They themselves even wondered why they kept going when they saw that it had no effect at all on them. How did the Seminole take advantage of the fact that the cannon required so many men in order to get off a shot? That basically became the centerpiece, the center point of the battle. As men were shot down, crewing the cannon, and replaced by other men, they just basically continued to hammer the crew to serve the piece itself. Unfortunately, they put so much focus on the operation of that gun, it just became a never-ending cycle. As one crew was shot, another crew would come in, or individuals would replace men on the crew, and they continued to be picked off one by one by one. Although you said this was a very good spot for an ambush, why didn't they attack when Dade's command was divided and trying to cross the river? I believe it had also to do with them awaiting a certain number in their party. I don't think they were set with the right amount of people in the first couple of days where the heaviest of the crossings were because they were coming from different parts. Uh, but also one of the larger settlements for the Seminoles was closer to the ambush point in Bushnell, the Wahoo Swamp. I think terrain and where the Seminoles themselves were located had a little more to do with that than anything else. They were waiting on some more folks to join their prey as well. They were waiting on perhaps the most famous Seminole, Osceola. Why was Osceola not at this battle? Osceola was himself taking part in an action at the same exact time at Fort King. He and other Seminoles went up and killed the head of the government efforts, the Indian agent, General Wiley Thompson. So at the same exact time this ambush was occurring at the battlefield, he killed Wiley Thompson and the sutler at Fort King, kind of a two-pronged attack. That's why he and several of other Seminoles were not part of that party. There were historical reports that they wanted Osceo. They were waiting on him, but then they could wait no longer. How much truth is there to that? I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, it depends on who you, you look at when it comes to the research. Some folks say that the intent by the Seminoles had to been to have a two-pronged attack for psychological value, the shock of having two things. I've read some where they didn't believe Osceola was to join them in that party. I myself tend to think that they may have tried to wait an extra day or two, but like I said, it depends. Some say that that was meant to be a shock and awe combined arms attack, but I am not sure. I don't have a great answer to that. My personal thoughts is they just think that was the best spot based on other areas along the march for that spot. It was going to happen then, and that's where they just planned to have it. After action reports and debriefings from Seminole that were captured, they said that their intent was not to wipe out the command, but they ended up doing so anyway. Why was this? It had everything to do with actions of our own army. Again, falling back on training and doctrine. In the middle of the battle, one of the things about doctrine was to build a defensive set of works, something able to help them into defense. So they began building a breastworks in the center of the line. In this case, they built a triangular barricade of felled pine trees, big set of stacked logs, and they put the artillery piece, wounded men, and those who could still fire, all within the confines of this barricade. It did two things. Psychologically, it bolstered the spirits of the Seminoles because their original intent is to put the fear of God in the men, attack and show strength, but they didn't intend to wipe everybody out. They got everything they came to do to scare the army, to show that they could fight, to show their resolve. They wiped out over half the men initially, but that 
building of the barricade bolstered their spirits. They were actually withdrawing. They were leaving at that point. They began to hear the axes and commands to, to form. They, they looked and saw. Uh, it was almost as if it was divine providence that they're pinning themselves up, barricading themselves, gave them the resolve to just finish it off at that point. With everybody pinned up like animals in one area, it made their job easier to do that, not harder. Who survived the battle from Dade's command, and why do you think they survived the battle? Well, we knew um, Private Ransom Clark uh, was one such because he went on to actually speak about it on a speaking tour afterwards. He survived after five wounds from Seminole rifles. He was able to basically walk and crawl his way back to Fort Brooke after those pretty heavy wounds. And he is who we have most of the story uh, for the Army purposes on what happened in the battle. It took him several days to make his way back to Fort Brooke. We also have Private Joseph Sprague, who survived by feigning death. We know that those that did survive either made it by surviving their wounds, crawling back, uh, but all of them had to feign death because in the aftermath of the battle themselves, each of the, the Seminoles were going through making sure everyone was dead. And we know from Clark's account that he was under a pretty good pile of bodies. And then there's the case of Luis Pacheco. Who was Luis Pacheco? How did he come to survive? Pacheco was a hired contractor, so to speak. He was hired by the Army as a guide through Seminole territory. He spoke some of the dialect. The reality was he was the slave of a woman outside of Fort Brooke who happened to have some workings within the different native areas. So he knew a little bit of the language, but he had made the trek back and forth several times. So the Army contracted with his owner to help guide them. He was, by most accounts, towards the head of the column, guiding them through. When the shots were fired at that point, he was gone. There's no record of which way did he run, but he was able to survive unscathed and then spent the next several uh, years with the Seminoles themselves. There's wide speculation, and I, and I don't all the details are judged, but some feel that he was in on it and knew it was coming, and that's why he ran to the Seminoles, while there are others who said, no, he just survived, and uh, because of his association was able to run without harm to the Seminoles. I don't know enough to form an opinion either way. Uh, I am not sure that he knew it was happening. I don't think he personally led them to their dooms, but I don't know enough to know if he was in on it or not. But he was indeed uh, the lone civilian survivor of this. From Seminole attack on the eastern coast of Florida, when they attacked plantations, they would liberate black slaves. So there is some precedent, if not trying to liberate Luis Pacheco, then to leave him alone as a non-combatant. What is your take on that? Based on several other occurrences before and after this battle, blacks within the Seminole tribe were kind of a complex issue, but... The difference was that even though some Seminoles had slaves themselves, their slavery was quite a bit different than white chattel slavery. I think it had everything to do with what skills or what knowledge one brought. You could earn your freedom through several things, work, knowledge, and generally how well you got along. So even those slaves that were held by the Seminoles were quite a bit different. But blacks fairly rapidly were able to assimilate their way into Seminole society and became so widespread that black slaves from U.S. and territorial plantations have become a point to run to Seminole land because they knew that if you could assimilate the Seminole culture, you became accepted 
It's not like a full accepted member, enough to live on your own with much more freedom than ever given before. And I think also that there were several black Seminoles who were widely regarded within the tribe uh, and fully accepted. When you look at examples like John Horse, for instance, they were given actual leadership roles, if not chiefdom within the tribe. But I think by very nature of the Seminoles being a mix of other areas and tribes, uh, what's one more culture to add to it? I think Seminole culture was very accommodating to the blacks uh, and became a better place for them in many areas than it would be the plantation life in the South. It's a fascinating part of Seminole culture to me are the black Seminoles. Actions did Seminole take after they had achieved the victory? Some of my understanding is that the some of the women Seminoles and black women Seminoles came through and helped strip some of the equipment from the soldiers, whether that was arms or cartridge boxes. But later on in other battles, we know of instances where Seminoles had American equipment, American headgear, a couple coats and jackets here and there. So I think they were part of that effort. Then the Seminole withdrew back to their villages and the soldiers lay where they fell. In about six weeks, a relief party arrived to survey the carnage and bury the dead. What did this consist of, and what did they find? So they had a party led by Colonel Foster of the 4th U.S. Infantry Regiment. They came several weeks later. They came upon the basic carnage left as is. So they found the triangular barricade that was built. They found bodies and bones of the command where they fell, all the way from the advance party way back to the rear of the line. Basically, they were tasked with burying the party on site. To true Army doctrines and his personal convictions, uh, he had... Music played, men marched very solemnly as recorded in his letters, and they were buried, the enlisted men, within the confines of the barricade and the officers separately on their own. Depending on which account you read, whether the cannon was placed barrel down in the ground or if it had been dumped in the water, depending on other accounts. But all accounts agree that the men were buried very solemnly when Colonel Foster realized what an upcoming storm was going to happen when this word got out of this. He became very solemn himself. What was done with this area in the immediate months and years after the battle? Subsequently, it became a stopping point along the Fort King Road with an actual fort built. It became Army doctrine to have a series of supply and defensive forts all the way from Fort Brook to Fort King. Fort Armstrong was built close to the site. So during the Seminole War, it continued to serve on as an area. Plus, it was a very solemn reminder to every soldier that marched the road to any of the forts all the way up to Fort King. It was a reminder every time as they walked by to see where it happened. I've read several accounts of folks saying what a wake-up it was to see where Dade's men fell. Gave them reason to be cautious through the whole war because that road continued to be used as the major artery on the West Coast. So a lot of folks got to see it and the addition of that fort where eventually they had a fort roughly one day's march away from each other all the way up north that became part of that cog. The Seminole were quite successful getting the Army to decide, yes, let's come to some agreement with the Seminole. Leave them south of Tampa, down to the rest of the peninsula, and we'll call it good. But the Seminole did not take into consideration the fact that the decision-makers were in Washington as opposed to in the Army. And no amount of military defeats to the Seminole would change their mind until there became a new administration in Washington City that looked on the conflict in a different way. Any war that we've fought more than two or three years 
and you have changes in administration and doctrine or changes in the home front, folks at home, you can look at the popularity of Vietnam, for instance. Everybody was kind of for that at the beginning, but as that drug out and you have multiple administrations and you lose the home front resolve, you have different endings. And there were anti-war movements in the United States even during the Second Seminole War. There were uh, peace groups in the Northeast. This was becoming unpopular for the American public as well. So it was just a perfect storm of anti-war thought, uh, changes in mind. And yes, as the point you bring a new administration, it was time. Their strategy of influencing or compelling the army failed for a great many number of years. Can we really blame them, though? No, I don't think so. In the fact that in that time, in that place, everybody that uh, they had dealt with, their leadership and spiritual centers were always together. We're all right there. If you wanted to speak to another chief, you spoke to another chief. And I don't know that they really understood the concept of a, in our case, the, the chief in the big white house not being there. I also think we kind of lose track of how communication can differ. The old example of the phone chain game. You, know, you tell a story to someone and they tell it to another, how it's lost in translation. I'm not thoroughly convinced that all times the president knew everything going on down here because of so many states, uh, so many miles removed. And in the Army, also having so much leadership change in itself, different generals down here at different times. And with each change of a commanding general in the department, doctrine and tactics changed and fought. So I think for the Seminoles, it had to be actually kind of confusing to even know who was in charge. This was a tactical victory for the Seminole, but some view it as a strategic disaster. The initial thoughts from the Seminoles was if we can bloody their nose and show uh, no fear and that we're going to be hard to remove, that they would just leave them alone. But to strengthen the resolve of not only the army that was present in Florida, then it became national headline news, and it strengthened the resolve of Americans and the War Department. And they began to flood the area with more regulars, militia, volunteers from other states. It was a demoralizing attack, but kind of like 9-11 here or Pearl Harbor, you know, other wars, there's that one event that bolsters the public opinion, and this was it. Psychologically, now America's behind a war, and if there wasn't going to be one before this happened, there definitely was after it happened. The Seminole had the right idea. It's just that it took a very long time. I think they thought initially, like I think most warring societies feel, that they can attack quick enough and show resolve and show strength that they can shock someone into doing something. Uh, this wasn't the case. This became a case of resolve versus resolve. You have the physical and mental resolve of the Seminoles to stay in their homes, yet you have the resources of the War Department and volunteers from several states. So these clashes just went on longer than I think anyone wanted or predicted it to. By 1842, everyone was done. Seminoles themselves just wanted to be left alone. The War Department was definitely over. It was just time. It was attrition. It was long and drawn out. And like many other American wars, Americans lost interest, lost resolve. They become pretty forgetful after a couple, three years in anything. One by one, their settlements and crops being burned. The Seminoles, as they are captured, are brought to the interior forts and eventually shipped out. It just became a long, drawn-out war for them and became very hard to replace. They went to areas that no white men really wanted, the Everglades or other marshy areas. Even today, looking at these areas, it would have been 
incredibly hard. You combine all of those factors, and I think everybody was ready for it to be over. In the end, with the Army leaving, land that they're occupying is there. Spiritually, psychologically, the Seminoles are left with their pride intact. Even though the winners are Seminoles, I don't think there was a clear winner or loser in this. Everybody was losers in the long run. Ross Lamoureux, we're out of time. Thanks for a fascinating discussion, and thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.